Hello and welcome to Mega City Book Club, the podcast all about the galaxy's greatest comics. I'm Evan Clark, and my guest for this episode is the creator and editor of the fabulous Battling Britons magazine, of which more about that later. Uh, a warm book club welcome to Justin Marriott. Hello, Justin. Hi, Eamon. Thanks for having me. No, it's a great pleasure. Thank you for giving up your afternoon. Uh, I can see, because we've got the video on, you're surrounded by comics and uh, your collection of Commando. We'll be talking about British war comics and battling Britons later on, but uh, an impressive-looking collection that um, our listeners can't see. <laughs> we'll spare them. Uh, yeah. two, two years ago, there wouldn't have been any of those Commando comics at all. Uh, we might touch on it later, but it really was a, a lockdown rediscovery, uh, or not even rediscovery, discovery uh, and a growing addiction. So yeah, they're, they're relatively recent acquisitions. So we're going to start with 2000 AD comics origin stories. Tell us about your early comics and uh, the prog. Yeah, of course. So I was born in 1969, so sort of grew up in the 70s probably what many of us would regard as a real golden age of uh, British comics. Uh, apologies to any Eagle readers listening. Um, so I kind of think my first memories of comics was through my dad. Um, so he was a TV engineer back in the days when people used to rent televisions and uh, he was part of an army of guys. You went out to repair your television. So a lot of time on the road and whenever I went into his work van and pulled down the the sun visor, uh, comics would fall out of those. And they would typically be the, the British reprints of Marvel comics. So you're kind of your Hulk and Spider-Man uh, with the two weeklies I remember the most. So I, th I think reading Hulk and Spider-Man are probably my earliest memories. I think the Hulk stories were when... I think it might have been John Severin was kind of drawing or inking them. So he had the abomination and the leader. Uh, so I've got fond memories of, of that time of, of the Hulk. And I think Spider-Man, I'd missed the Ditko years. And it was the John Romita uh, years that I probably started reading. And sort of the Green Goblin was a key character from from that stage. So, so my dad kind of got me into into comics and... He would kind of officially bring me home a weekly comic, and that weekly comic was action. Um, so that is, yeah, that's a, a, a hugely important comic to me. I kind of, I think if I had a penny for everyone who kind of claimed I went to the newsagent and my action wasn't there, um, I, I think the the distribution of action would have been a lot higher than it than it was. But I genuinely was someone who went to my NSS. NSS news agent. I think I was a, a West Country chain went there and I just could not get my head round when I asked for my action. They told me it, it had been banned and I would have been seven or eight at the time. So I just, I just could not comprehend how something that brought me so much pleasure and enjoyment just wasn't available um, anymore. So I think that kind of set set me on a, a lifelong distrust of all things uh, authority <laughs> authority so it really really sort of shaped shaped a lot of my my views you know huge action fan obviously loved hook jaw you know would fill pages of my own drawings of of hook jaw kind of swimming in in sort of seas of blood and sort of limbs the the kind of the image 
of uh, the the oil rigger whose body kind of explodes into about eight parts uh, as Hookjaw crushes him and he kind of, you know, I'll get you, Critter. Uh, I remember drawing that many, many times um, and also enjoyed uh, Death Game 1999 in that. That was a real, a real favourite. And I, I think I read Action all the way to the end, even the post kind of ban, uh, emasculated version of, of Action, when it joined battle i had no interest at all really didn't like war comics which is quite strange considering i spend a lot of time reading and collecting them <laughs> but, but you know it just did not appeal to me and i remember someone bringing 2000 ad into school and i was attracted to it because i had the robotic king kong in it but i had sort of decided i didn't like science fiction i'd sort of seen star wars at the cinema didn't really like star wars or and that was probably not helped by then going to see the black hole the disney version of star wars and uh, a battlestar galactica film which i think was a couple of us tv episodes sort of packaged packaged together so i decided i didn't like science fiction so the the kind of the earliest memory i've got of 2000 ad i think was around the day the law died um and then really the cursed earth you know, which to this day still remains my favourite comic strip. That was kind of when I really sort of remembered thinking this is something very special. Um, and, you know, the Mick McMahon art on Cursed Earth kind of must remain my favourite favorite to this day, uh, really. And I, I think uh, my kind of, for me, the 2000 AD I most vividly remember was almost when it went to slightly different printers for maybe a couple of a couple of months, um, yeah. and the the quality of the paper and the clarity of the printing was much better. And I, I seem to remember Strontium Dog, a Ghost to Hell with some amazing kind of color artwork center spreads for that, and especially the ABC Warriors. I think started then, and I've got a memory of. Brendan McCarthy, I think, drawing a center spread of Steelhorn, this incredibly handsome robot that then got melted down to become the sludge or or some some creature along those lines. And also a Mick McMahon kind of center spread, I think a general black blood and some sort of tripods in a kind of a quasi Vietnam on Mars setting. I haven't I haven't got these comics anymore. These are just memories. So someone might quickly point out if I'm misremembering, but those, if you say 2000 AD, that was kind of the prime time when it really gripped me. I think I probably read until Skiz, I uh, sort of Skiz by Alan Moore and Jim Bakey. I really enjoyed that. And I, I loved Harry 20 on high rock um, by Finley day and Alan Davis Re revisited both of those more recently and I wasn't sure if they had aged quite so well uh, but I think I probably then left 2000 AD around then I think Warrior magazine was coming out that used some of the 2000 AD talent and you had I suppose Alan Moore going off to do Swamp Thing and other British artists following him so what's that probably some point in the mid to late 80s I sort of drifted mm -hmm. away from 2000 AD and then maybe we'll come on to it later. 
but I missed a lot of the superhero stage people do. And due to the book we're about to talk about, Masters of Comic Book Art, I kind of got into some of the more, I suppose, of the time left field alternative and, and underground comics, really. Okay. Well, let's get to it. You've mentioned it briefly. Tell us about the book, a rather interesting book, which I confess I'd not heard of, but the book you've chosen for uh, this visit to the book club. Yeah. And at work, when you're at a meeting and someone says, that's an interesting point, that normally means you think someone's totally lost the plot, but don't want to say that. So so I, I think it is an interesting choice, as in, plot spoiler ahead, this is more of a book that had a massive impact on me at a certain time of my life and in a certain environment and if I discovered this book 50 years later the impact would not be the same so hopefully no plot spoilers there and hopefully no we're not gonna have everyone turning off the the podcast but um the book is called Masters of Comic Book Art uh not the more recent David Roach edited uh, Masters of Comic Book Art I think Richard Sheaf talked about very eloquently on on here but this is the book from um 1979 uh by p r garriak um it's um covers 10 artists which uh garriak would consider to be the masters of of comic book um art um i'll pause there Eamon, in case you want to sort of say anything about the book and who's contained uh within it well, I'll get you to tell us about the artists in a moment. Yeah. Let's just say it's a sort of, I've got um, a paperback, what I would call um, album type book. It, as you say, was uh, 1979, uh, Orem Press, Big O Publishing, £4.95. Um, and it is, it's not quite coffee table book, but it's sort of getting towards that sort of thing. Um I mean, I love reading books about comic book history and comic book artists. Uh, and this is a great example, which, as I say, I hadn't come across before. Tell us when you first uh, encountered this book. Yeah, um, time's a bit vague, really. I'm in my early 50s, so sometimes you try to remember these things and it all, it all kind of blurs. It was definitely a Christmas present from my mum and dad. Um, in retrospect, probably the authorities needed to be knocking on the door to kind of understand why they thought this might have been a suitable Christmas present for a 12, 13-year-old teenager. But uh, I absolutely love them for it. Um, there was a uh, an out-of-town, I wouldn't say shopping centre, but one of these kind of sells everything type uh, outlets that we used to go to. Uh, and within that, they had kind of a stationary department and I'd go there with my pocket money and buy pencils and sketch pads to do my own comics. They always had a spinner rack of uh, paperbacks that were discounted. They had this distinctive kind of saw cut uh, in the edge. So they would sell cheap paperbacks and also books. And within there, they had the Masters of Comic Book Art, which I think had been out for probably two or three years. This is probably, you know, I'm talking about 82, 83 so presumably it was remaindered. I said to mum and dad, I quite like the look of this. And they said, right, well, it, it can be a Christmas present. And um, yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I kind of grew up in a, a, you know, we're a working class family, dad, TV engineer. Mum was 
at home looking after the kids or working uh, as a cleaner. But in terms of kind of entertainment and culture, you know, mum and dad were very liberal. So, you know, kind of, I think they would have been, well, I know they would have been cool with me having this, having this book. And as we touch on, it's got some kind of quite adult themes in it, probably particularly for the late 70s when it was published or the early 80s when I was reading it. And um, for me, it was a meatball moment. And that's probably a reference most people wouldn't necessarily initially get, but maybe we'll we'll come on to meatball moments uh, uh, shortly. But a really pivotal, pivotal book for me. Great Christmas present, I'm going to say. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I've never had one since. (laughs) I like it. (laughs) So I've said it's a large format paperback album, uh, partly in colour, partly in black and white. Just describe roughly the sort of format or the out or the outline of the contents what are, what are we going to find inside this book so uh, it's broadly got it's got 10 what i would call profiles in it of the artists that gary Uck has kind of chosen as his masters of comic book art each of them will have a kind of a two-page introductory mini essay then eight pages of examples of that artist's work um, decent reproduction, uh, full colour throughout, although black and white and full colour uh, images uh, within it. Sometimes it will reproduce an entire comic strip of eight pages back to back. Other times it will pick out individual panels and show them against broadly uh, a white a white background. I think in terms of the the artists. I think you can see that Gary Ock has been considered in terms of what kind of, I suppose, genres uh, or mediums of comic book that he's chosen from. And I, I suppose I would have kind of said there's a bit of a a couple of what I would call classic artists. I think Gary Ock's chosen very carefully in terms of who's in the book, in terms of a spread of, I suppose, approaches to comic book art and types of comics so you've probably got what i would call the classic artists but let's call those frank bellamy uh, and also will eisner then you've probably got what i would call the ec artists so harvey kurtzman uh, and wally wood then i think the europeans so philip druyer um, and also jean gerard slash moebius then you've got your underground artists, uh, Robert Crumb and uh, Victor Moscoso. And then probably maybe I should have included in the classic artists in terms of their approach, Barry Windsor-Smith. So I, th- I think that would probably go Gary X gone. Let's get some EC artists because that was really important. Some Europeans. Uh, I'm not sure if I mentioned Corbin, to be honest. That's a real oversight. Richard Corbin, maybe I would put Corbin and Windsor-Smith in like the new Turks or the new emerging kind of renegade talent uh, around that time. You know, you've got a couple from from the undergrounds and then, yeah, you've got your real classics. So I think some people might say, where are the Marvel DC? And maybe later on we might talk about what are the emissions but I think that was probably a very, it's kind of quite a, not a countercultural, but it's quite an alternative selection of comic book artists. 
And again, when we talk about the people behind the book, I think that probably fits in with what they wanted to do as well. And I'm going to say that for 1978, 79 or early 80s when you got it, these would have been by and large artists that we weren't familiar with from reading British comics. These this would have been, I'm guessing, a revelation, some of these artists, because um, probably never seen their work, may not even have ever heard of them at this point. Yeah, a- absolutely. And and I, and I think this is kind of one of the, the things I might hope to communicate about my, my passion for the book. It was almost like a bit like, for me... Um, that one of those old maps that you see uh, of the world and because something was like totally unexplored and not documented there'd be something that says here be monsters and just a picture of a sea serpent it was kind of like for me this book was almost like some sort of incomplete map that showed me all of these amazing places to visit but I had no way to visit there. I mean, at the time I was living in Exeter in Devon. So there wasn't a specialist comic shop uh, in, you know, close. The nearest one was Bristol, probably that's 80, 85 miles away. We're not talking about the internet. You know, comics were a frowned upon medium. You know, you didn't tell your mates at school that you read, you read comics, certainly not any girls. So it, it was like, wow, who who are these people? And part of the, the one of the bits about the book that really stuck with me, there are bibliographies uh, in in the back. And if I choose the the Richard Corbin uh, bibliography, uh, people might be familiar with Corbin about some of the stuff that he did for Vertigo, Hellblazer. He did some uh, Marvel stuff, Luke Cage, The Punisher. That stuff for me is a is a very commercialized polished version of of Corbin's work you know he did some really out there stuff in his early early career and in the bibliography it listed titles like Slow Death, Fantagore, Grimwit, Fever Dreams and I read that and I really thought these titles were made up I couldn't believe they existed genuinely like for, for as a 10 year old and 11 year old I'm like Fever Dreams like what what the hell is well, I'm used to the lion and the victor. I, what on earth is this? And in this day and age, you're just a Google search away from 1,500 copies of, you know, Fantagore coming up. But that just wasn't available, you know, in the early 80s to 11, 12-year-olds. So really, with the exception of Bellamy, who I knew of but didn't really like because uh, – you know, being of the action in 2000 AD generation, that was probably very in opposition to the treatment of the Eagle and Dan Dare. I think Windsor Smith, I would have known as Barry Smith due to his Conan stuff that would have been reprinted. But a lot of the Windsor Smith stuff in the book uh, it are kind of posters and prints that, again, I never would have seen. So I would actually really say 90% of the book was mind-blown. What is this stuff? And uh, there's sexuality in there. There's violence in there. There's some really weird images. It wasn't just the, the, uh, the talent of the artist. It was kind of the variety of treatments in there. So you've got Kurtzman, who at times when I used to try and copy some of his stuff, I used to be like, it's very crude. It's just a few brush strokes. 
all the way through, which it obviously wasn't before everyone kind of hunts me down with a pitchfork and flaming torches. And then on the other hand, you've got Victor Moscoso, this underground artist who sort of almost rejects kind of standard narrative. It is almost fine art. So it was just this whole kind of comics doesn't have to be three page episodes with cliffhangers. It can almost be whatever, whatever it wants to be. Fantastic. Well, we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the artists and some of the artwork in here. But before we do that, let me ask you about the author, or should I say the curator maybe of this book, Pierre Garriock. Uh, Tell me about him, because he sounds fascinating (laughs) in his own right. This could be a really short conversation, although I have an email from Pierre Garriock, uh, international man of mystery, I think in terms of P.R. Garriott, who was sometimes known as Doc, presumably short for Doctor, and his email refers to himself as Jock. Um, I don't know the origins of Jock. He's he's a West Country lad, so um, certainly you know not a, not not Scottish uh, in in any way. So the main things that I can trace about him is he appears to have kind of gone to art school. And then following art school has begun to teach art as well. Um, there's a few names here mentioned in the email that I'll read out from him uh, in a moment. Uh, looks like he kind of curated uh, a few comic uh, exhibitions uh, in Newcastle, which is where I think where he, he went to art university. I think he kind of dabbled a bit in paperback illustration, did maybe one or two covers. And I think he also maybe worked in animation for a short while maybe worked on the yellow submarine but all that information to be honest is probably available on google and almost the only place on google is his official website i mean eamon before before i read out the email i got from him was there is there anything you know about him or or managed to find out all i think i think i found on because he does have a website and i as you say he worked on backgrounds for yellow submarine he Apparently, also did background art on the Snowman. Oh wow! Okay, recently celebrated its fortieth anniversary, and he did some backgrounds on Who Framed Roger Rabbit. So he's done some film work that's quite notable. But yes, he seems to be more known for his sort of his uh, teaching and curation, and this fascinating book, which, as you say, is beautifully referenced. The bibliography is quite comprehensive, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and. Uh, Apparently, a lot of it's written by Mal Burns, who I think is an important oh, right. figure. So, so maybe, maybe if I read the email that I've got from PR, PR Garriuk, yeah, I read it out. I read it out as he as he wrote it to me. I think there's some really some really fascinating points in there. It's less about PR Garriuk, more about the book. Um, but there's some nice anecdotes in there, and then maybe we can touch on Mal Burns. And also Christopher Lauder is mentioned in the acknowledgements as well, who, once we talk a bit more about him, a few people might go, ah. So um, let's uh, have a, um, I feel like I should be putting on some sort of thespian voice. But as I said, uh, he he is a West Country lad. So we've got the same accent, I'm sure. Um, So hi, Justin. Nice to hear from you. Uh, Early days. I wrote to a lot of my favorite artists prepared a dummy of the book, brackets, it was much bigger in the early stages, close brackets, took it to book fairs, memory serves, it took a couple of years to get interest. The first bite was Ballantine Books in America, 
who took the book and disappeared for a couple of years. He pinched the idea. And one artist, Frank Frazetta, and came out with his own Masters of Comic Art Frazetta paperback, which grew into a four book series. So from the original idea and dummy, we were five years into the journey to get a book off the ground. Then we had an idea. Give all the artists a part of the book sales. so Everybody got one percent with a firm contract. We got original art from everybody. In America, we got Harvey Kurtzman involved. The interest was growing. We got a European printing, a UK version, a hardback version, and a US version, even though it was a truncated version of the original idea. The design by Terry Jones really brought the book together. A lot of the text was cut to fit the smaller book, and a lot of the comic talk, narrative, examples, etc., were dropped leaving a lot of quotation arty talk, but work on the bibliography was exhaustive, helped by Mal Burns. Over the years, lots of other books about comics used the information in the bibliography. So the book began in the late 60s. The original dummy was prepared in 1970. Original art from everybody in the book was received and printed by an Italian printer. I always treasure talking to Will Eisner, Harvey Kurtzman, who gave advice in the early stages. Though not the encyclopedic tome I originally had in mind, it was still groundbreaking and it put all these different comic genres artists together. There is a sadness for me as most of these artists have died now. One recently I knew in Kansas City, Richard Corbin. Brackets, who I put in touch with another student of mine, Angus Mackay, in Newcastle-on-Tyne. Angus produced a book for Penguin, which was later developed into an animation. My first wife went to college with Richard Corbin at the Kansas City Art Institute and would meet up often at weekends and along with Jan Stranad, or Stranad, who produced several collaborations with Richard. There was an idea to have more UK artists, Leo Baxendale, Dudley Watkins. Barry Smith made it in and he has always been helpful. As the book neared completion, somebody presented themselves at the front desk at Orem, the publishers, and walked off with a lot of the original artwork, of which I was unaware. Until years later, some artwork turned up at a Sotheby auction. Sorry if all this seems muddled, not used to writing these days. A lot of feedback on this book from a lot of other artists and comic aficionados. Best, Jock, Brackets, Doc, Garriock. And that was on the February the 18th. Wow. Gosh, there's a lot in there, isn't there? I mean, you might... There's a lot to unpick in that. I mean, you're interviewing the wrong person. You really don't need fanboy on the line. You need Doc Jock Garriock uh, uh, here. But I'll quickly tell you how I I got um, uh, Doc Jock's uh, uh, email. Uh, A guy called Peter Normanton uh, produces a fanzine called from the tomb uh fanzine slash small press magazine ran for 20 25 issues uh all about uh horror comics uh really amazing uh fanzine if you're into horror comics that is the the definitive word and a couple of volumes were collated by two morrows um publishing uh in in america and i know pete's looking to relaunch the fanzine but there are a couple Doc Garriock 
articles that appeared in the fanzine. So I reached out to Pete and said, have you got a contact? He kind of went, amazing guy, always made me laugh, occasionally will disappear off the radar, don't know if he will respond. So thank you, Peter, for the, for the contact. Um, anyone listening, check out From the Tomb. Um, so I went back to Doc to kind of go, thank you for responding. There's like a million questions I want to ask you. And I've not heard back from him since. So um, thanks, Doc, for, for responding. Um, and maybe I'll, I'll pass over to you, Eamon, in terms of questions about what's it or observations about what's in his email. I've got a few thoughts as well. But what what were you, what are you thinking? Well, I mean, first of all, I mean, thank you for that. It's a wonderful email. Um, it's it's wonderful that he's still around and corresponding. Um, it's it's notable to me as that like this is a work of comic scholarship from a time period when we didn't think there was much comic scholarship going on, or at least we didn't know about it. And, yep. You know the the uh, the gestation period of over ten years to bring this book um, yeah. to fruition is astonishing. Um, as ever, <laughs> the fact that original art was um, treated by some publishers uh, slightly carelessly, shall we say, and that some of this artwork was stolen. I'm astonished. You know, we hear these stories about artworks being stolen, Brian Bolland's work, obviously, famously or infamously. But yes, people, somebody turned up at the desk and just asked for the artwork. I don't know whether to kind of admire that individual. I mean, it's, it's outrageous, isn't it? It's like, you know, turning up, I'm Doc Garriuk. I'm, I'm, I'm here for, uh, you know, uh, Frank Bellamy's Dan Dare art or, and, and sort of just dis- disappear. So there's some, some 85-year-old somewhere like sat in a room looking at all this amazing art, kind of can't share it with anyone because they stole it. But it's, it's outrageous, isn't it? It's outrageous. I think the couple the couple of bits that stood out to me, I totally agree with you. I mean, if that book, if you start pitching it in 1969, 1970, um, who in English language, I don't know so much about Europe, but who in English language was kind of pitching comics as art? I did start to sort of remember some of the reference books I had at that time, most of which I've kind of given away now. But I remember there was a, a book called Comics by Les Daniels, um, which um, contained, was black and white throughout, contained chapters on the whole history of comics that might have come out about that time. And at the end of each chapter, it reprinted about four or five examples of those strips. And it had, uh, I think, a section on sort of crime comics. I know there's one on EC comics. They had some Marvel in there and they had some underground comics in there. So I think that would have been out there. There was a book called The History of Underground Comics, um, which has gone through multiple printings. That was out about that time as well maybe a bit a bit later um you had the penguin book of political comics which was a reprint of a dutch um book and you had another book that i had was maurice horn's encyclopedia world encyclopedia of comics which was quite a thick uh dictionary 
that uh, was a proper worldwide. That was the first time I'd seen mention of manga artists uh, in there. That was a proper comprehensive one. So I think there were a, a few books around that time, but this, you know, in terms of if it did originally kick off in 1960, 1970, was possibly the first book to look at comics as an art form. Fascinating. Um, we will perhaps come back to, you know, books uh, studying the art form a bit later on. Before I ask you about some of the artists inside, um, just mention those two other names in the thank yous. Mal Burns yeah. and then Chris Lauder, who we think is another, either a misspelling or another slight pen name of our, you know, Chris Lauder we're more familiar with. Tell us about those. Yeah, of course. So uh, Mal Burns, I also reached out to on Facebook um, and said, I've seen you listed in here looking at your photos on Facebook. You look far too young. Was this your dad? And he's come back and said it was me, but unfortunately hasn't corresponded uh, any further. So I had hoped to have some information from, from Mal Burns. But I think Mal Burns is uh, probably a very important figure in British comics in that so he, in terms of this book, sounds like he was responsible for a lot of the bibliographies. And when you're talking about underground comic artists or European artists, that stuff would not have been easily available uh, in, in England. But he, he produced, um, there was an underground comic called Brainstorm Fantasy that he edited. Um, that was an early uh, English underground or British underground comic from 73, 74 that had Brian, maybe maybe a bit later, maybe 77, that had Brian Talbot, uh, who we all love for Luther Arkwright and Nemesis the Warlock, amongst others. He produces Chester P. Hackenbush um, story in it. There's actually some Brian Bolland stuff in there uh, as well. And then from Brainstorm Fantasy, I think he then went on to do something called Graphixus, which was uh, five issues, black and white, small press, that had more Bolland uh, in it, including the most outrageous comic cover you will ever see in a British comic by by Bolland uh, from a strip. I think he did that Bolland maybe got challenged uh, around uh, in terms of its, um, I suppose, cheesecake elements. I think it was called Little, Little Nympho in Slumberland or something along those lines. Um, so that appeared in there. Gary Leach was in Graphixus. Uh, John Higgins, who kind of went on to colour Watchmen and draw a lot of stuff for 2000 AD, was in there. Gary Leach uh, was was in there, who a lot of us love for the VCs. And uh, so Mal Burns did Graphixus. And then he went on to do Psst, which was like the British heavy metal, where I think he had a French investor who put money into the magazine. I haven't seen it in years. I'm sure it had Luther Arkwright. Um, in there so I suppose Mal Burns was was to my mind from a small press underground comics perspective you know really important it looks like he nurtured some major talents uh, in the pages of his his comics so I think you know yeah great to great to see Mal Burns uh, in there um, and then you've got Christopher Lauder that was spelled L-A-U-D-E-R now, most of us know of a Christopher Lauder, L-O-W-D-E-R, who I think is be might be better known as Jack Adrian 
who certainly did one of the band Cursed Earth Strips. I think he might have done the Jolly Green Giant one, or did he do the Burger Wars one? I think he did Jolly Green Giant. I think so, yes, that's right. Um, yeah, yeah um, so he wrote for 2008 Jack, as Jack Adrian. I don't know enough about the sort of the 60s comics, but I think he was kind of around Valiant at the, the time and may have sort of been around the kind of the Adam Eterno type strips so i think louder did a lot of work there and um i kind of knew him better as jack hamilton teed which was a pen name he used for pulp fiction he wrote some horror pulp fiction in that name and and some vietnam war fiction in the 80s uh, and he, he went off and kicked off a series called deathlands which uh, is, is something of a, a cult uh, series of post-apocalyptic fiction so he was another guy who I think had a strong countercultural view. So when you put those three together, it maybe makes sense how Robert Crumb and Victor Moscoso got included in this Masters of Comic Book Art uh, at a time when a lot of people might have challenged it. <laughs> I think more e- <laughs> even nowadays, I think Crumb might get challenged for his inclusion for a whole lot of different uh, problematic uh, reasons, but uh, back in the back in the seventies, it was probably a a brave but correct correct decision. Yes, uh, the controversial Robert Crumb, who's become more controversial as the decades are part of. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, let's let's focus in a little bit on the artists and the artwork. As you said, we probably knew Barry Smith from the black and white Conan reprints um, in Marvel UK. There was a there was a Savage Sword of Conan Marvel Weekly, I believe, as well at one point. Um, Frank Bellamy, we might have known if our fathers had shown us their Dan Dare uh, comics. But apart from that, I'm going to say, like we know, we've already mentioned this book would have been a revelation in terms of introducing uh, new types of art, new artists, uh, whole new vistas. I would guess. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if I if I flick through the book and maybe call out a few page numbers that we could maybe look at together, I think the first one I would call out for me would be on page 13, which is uh, a splash page from a 1950 uh, spirit strip. Um, So I would imagine a lot of people have heard of Will Eisner. but now I think he's kind of regarded as the godfather of the graphic novel. I think it was a, a contract with God. He's kind of regarded as the first as the first graphic novel. And Eisner was someone who, you know, used a lot of storytelling techniques, which, you know, people would consider innovative um, now. And this particular splash page, I remember it really well because basically I copied it. Uh, for the cover of the school newspaper so uh, on this um, on this splash page you've got the spirit leaning uh, against um, a spirit logo that's uh, made out of crumbling uh, bricks and it's set in kind of a very moody and atmospheric kind of dockside Um, looks like something out of a 1950s sort of noir film and uh, there's a, a, a policeman sort of floating uh, face down uh, in the in the water. So hugely kind of atmospheric uh, 
um, picture and also the the logo in bricks for 1950 been brilliant and um the school newspaper i went to a school called st thomas high school and the paper was called the st thomas inc so i changed spirit into stink and uh and and drew it but um got into trouble with the headmaster for depicting uh, a, a dead policeman floating in the water <laughs> shades shades of carlos esquera uh, and uh, kids rule okay cover. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Excuse, excuse, excuse myself for even mentioning my name in the same breath as Carlos Esquera. I, I shouldn't have done that, but it was it, it annoyed the annoyed the headmaster. But a brilliant, uh, a brilliant, brilliant uh, page of page of 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 art. What what do you think of it, Eamon? Oh, it's a stunner! It's an absolute stunner of a spirit page. Uh, there's so much going on in the page. As you say, the famous way that Eisner would put the logo, the title, into the sort of the architecture, the backgrounds. Um, it's a wonderful full-page image. Um, you know, I'm strangely enough, Justin, coming up on the book club in the next month or two, we will have, uh, we're doing Frank Miller's Sin City. And I know that Frank Miller was involved in the movie version of The Spirit. And looking at this page, you can see almost a direct connection between uh, Will Eisner's The Spirit and Frank Miller's Sin City in that black and white noir um aspect to it so yeah what a wonderful page to start with yeah. and as you say will eisner we might have just about heard of but we wouldn't have had a chance to have seen his stuff i would have thought and certainly for me i had no idea who he was and the revelation that this was an eight page strip that was the center spread of an american newspaper so you know for me the funnies were maybe taking a peek at george and lynn in the sun uh, or maybe Garth in the in the Daily Mirror that you know there was work that there was work of this quality and this innovation appearing in a newspaper again was really enlightening to to, to me and a real yeah a real shock. Um, um, another one I'll quickly pick is it was another one that I would try to copy, which was a Harvey Kurtzman uh, one. Now I could be a bit controversial and question why Kurtzman is in the book and Kurtzman is undoubtedly uh, a genius. Um, I just wonder where he's a genius as an editor, as a writer, someone who kind of made artists, you know, go to another level rather than necessarily, you know, to be recognized as an artist in himself. But there is a, Pay, there is a picture in actual fact it's not got a page number here it would be 23 and 24 it's a double page blow up of uh, a panel from one of his ec war comic uh, strips and uh, kurtzman apparently when he worked for ec comics he was complaining to, to william gaines that he was doing the war comics two-fisted tales and frontline combat and this, you know, people might recognize Pat Mills and Charlie's War here, but saying he was putting so much time and research and also he was basically laying out the panels for artists to almost follow his his layouts. He wasn't making anywhere near as, as much money as other EC editors like Al Feldstein, who were able to knock out four or five titles a month. So apparently uh, Gain said, well, just do this little humor comic called mad as a way to, to supplement, uh, your, your income. Um, but I think this, this panel from a strip, I think it's called Airburst, 
to, to kind of my 12 year old eye, it just looked like someone had slapped eight or nine brush strokes down on a page. And I remember trying to copy it and just getting so frustrated that I just couldn't capture how dynamic uh, the, the, the image was. And I'm looking at it now and because I don't draw or paint anymore, I don't know what the techniques are, but it's almost kind of like the blush, the brush strokes and the flourishes he uses. And then the different sort of, I suppose, thickness of line and where he's maybe used white out. You just look at it now. And I suppose it's one of those, it's what he's left out that shows his incredible uh, skill. So I, I just think that's a real, for anyone like me saying, why is Kurtzman in there? Look at this image, try and copy it, and you'll you'll find out pretty quickly. And Harvey Kurtzman's war comics, again, another fascinating subject. And here, as you say, it's almost it's that thing when you look at an artist doing their work and you you realise that they haven't drawn like an outline of a character. They've just made blocks of shape of sort of ink on the page, and yet it forms this dramatic image. And then, as you say, over the top, we've got presumably white out to indicate uh, the, the rounds or the, the shrapnel hitting the ground around these two soldiers. Incredibly dramatic and effective page. Yeah, you're right. And as I'm looking at it, you can also see there's an explosion above the two characters. Um, yeah, it's just the setting. It's just, it's just phenomenal. It's, yeah, I feel ashamed of myself for doubting while Kurtzman's in here. I will... Um, say some Hail Marys uh, later. Um, next one, um, let's go for Frank Bellamy. So this is page 40 to 41. I think this is probably a very, very famous spread from Heros the Spartan. But what is so incredible about this one? I think this is maybe his most famous spread. I'm not that familiar with Bellamy or this strip, but this is, so it's full color, you know, uh, as I suppose, as the Eagle was famous for, really great quality printing and in the center of this full color uh, spread you have a gray wash kind of rectangular panel going across both pages which is demonstrating this last stand uh, between the romans and i presume some sort of barbarians or ghouls i can't see asterisks or obliques in there but they're, they're being they're being attacked and it's this combination of amongst all this color this grey wash in the middle stands out even more. So you kind of go, what what an amazing um, kind of choice. And also, and this will connect to maybe a Barry Smith page we'll look at in a moment. I mean, the figures, it is like the biggest kind of most cinematic spread you've ever seen. And it looks like there are 60, 70 different figures posed in the, in the battle. So I think it's... Uh, staggering piece of piece of art where where do you stand on it Eamon if if you just took that sort of gray wash central panel that runs across the page divide and blew that up into the two-page spread you would think you know the artist had earned his pay for doing that alone but to have that in uh, the middle of the two pages where there's all these other panels going on around there's a circular panel you know he's doing interesting things with panel layouts and shapes it is a remarkably detailed and wonderful piece of art of the sort of conflict. Um, yeah, I just love it. I love that central, 
what he's done with that central conflict. Uh, I love seeing a signature on the bottom of the page, Frank Bellamy's yeah. signature. Um, yes, Heroes the Spartan, what an epic image. And it is going to be, you can see the influence that this might have had on a young Barry Smith, who we're going to come to in a moment. I think I know the page we're heading towards. Uh, but yeah, incredible. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, before we go to Barry Smith, let's go Corbin. So for, for me, most of those the pages in the Corbin section could be growl pages. And one of them is in a, a contender. I've got two. But the, the image that I wanted to call out is on page 44. So on page 44 is a single panel, a rectangular panel, which has uh, been taken out of the strip that most people have called Den or uh, or Neverwhere. So, um, like I said, for those of you more familiar with maybe Corbin's later work, this is, I suppose, the work that maybe made him famous or infamous when it was the first episodes were reprinted in heavy metal, then new episodes present. Uh, it's, it's the story of um, a radio enthusiast nerd who is transported to uh, another dimension where he's changed into this hugely muscled, um, hugely endowed. I didn't think he was. I thought he was pretty average, but many of you might consider this, this Den character to be hugely endowed, muscular, and he has these uh, exotic battles on a faraway planet. It is the ultimate sort of adolescent power fantasy stuff, but the whole kind of, Edgar Rice Burroughs, John Carter of Mars, where you're transported to another planet where you've got sort of increased physical powers was was very popular. There's elements of Conan in it. And uh, Corbin's got quite a lot of sardonic humour, uh, uh, which comes from uh, a pulp author called Clark Ashton Smith, who he, he would later adapt a lot. But this particular image, so Den has descended on this planet, has arrived on this planet. He's seen a, a, a naked woman walking across the sand, being pursued by this uh, ugly lizard creature. And he feels the need to kind of rescue her. And um, uh, Den leaps out and bashes this lizard creature on the head with a boulder, from what I remember. And the lizard creature kind of looks at him, is that the best you can do? And punches Den in the face. And this uh, rectangular panel shows the lizard punching Den in the face. And Corbin kind of shows the ripples uh, running in Den's, uh, Den's face. So it, it's kind of that subversive. The character has reached out to, to grab the, the woman at risk and got his ass handed to him on a, on a plate. Uh, and just the whole kind of uh, over-exaggerated ripples uh in den's in den's face so um i don't think it's a particular piece of of fine art uh but it, it just struck me as as funny and quintessentially corbin but but Eamon, you might have a different you might have a different view uh on on that one no i mean i always love when the artist does something with the perspective of the fist almost coming out of the page and i'm sure uh, you probably did, but trying to recreate that perspective on the uh, the creature's yeah. arm is dramatic. And let's just say the Richard Corbin section of this book, uh, some of the most colourful artwork in this book, but also I can imagine uh, for the young 
twelve year old Justin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Richard Corbin liked drawing the occasional boob, didn't he? Uh, for a young a young teenager yeah. this would be quite uh, appreciated, yeah. I'm sure, this yeah. section. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It would have made a big impact, a big impact on me. <laughs> never to be never to be forgotten. Um yeah. so so um so yeah, Barry Smith. So on page fifty-seven there's an image that I would recognise as being on a Conan Treasury edition yes. uh, with a big white border, and it's it's an image of uh, Conan uh, atop uh, a kind of a pile of a pile of corpses, um, and I suppose for me it's that that connection with Heros uh, the Spartan uh, in terms of that image that we we talked about, and I suppose what i really like about this image is, is so many things so the perspective is almost set as if you're looking up at conan potentially you're the next one to try and climb up that kind of mountain of corpses and bodies to kind of be dispatched uh, by by conan and i think there's a frazetta uh, paperback cover for a conan that has Conan looking very moody uh, above a above a pile of a pile of bodies. So it's the whole looking up. Also, it appears to be set at at dark or it's getting dark. So immediately you kind of go, well, no one starts fighting at dark. How how long have they been here? So this is kind of the end of a long day uh, of of killing for killing for Conan. He's he's put an overtime in for for, for this and. Um, also, it's raining, and there's kind of a combination of of rain, as we know, as in raindrops, but almost a rain of blood as well. There's kind of like rain and blood is dripping everywhere. So I think probably Smith was the first one to put the savage into the savage sword of Conan. He kind of looks, yeah, it's just a very visceral um image what's what's your what's your thoughts and memories of this one uh Eamon? well i chose the color version of this page as my grail page from david roach's masters of british comic art uh when i talked about it with richard sheath this is one of my favorite single pages in the entire history of comics um it is and in black and white it is stunning just stunning this page I'll try and post some images of it it when we come out. Uh, This episode comes out in April, and uh, so people can see what we're talking about. This page is just um, almost indescribably beautiful in its uh, horror, in a way, because, you know, as you say, it's not just a rain of water, of rain, there's a rain of blood. Um, It's a brutal page, but it is so beautiful that it would almost make you, as an artist, look at this page and say... Oh, that's it. I can never do anything like that. <laughs> it is astonishing. Yeah. Um, yeah, so know, you, you probably know as the editor of a fanzine about war comics, that famous saying about uh, military conflicts, you know, military engagements usually take place at night in the rain at the junction of two maps. And this is like, <laughs> this is like that, isn't it? You know, yeah. the best yeah. plans anyway. But yeah, it is a stunner. We've talked about it before on the podcast, but what a wondrous page. And and seeing that connection back to Heros the Spartan um, is fascinating as well. Well chosen by uh, Doc Garriock. Yeah. Um, and I'm so glad. I'm so glad we chose one of your favourites uh, as 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 well. Um, 
I suppose next, I would I would like to pick some stuff by Mobius and Philip Drouillet, but in terms of the stuff that really had an impact on me, those two less so. I kind of remember picking up Drouillet. I had a couple of books, I think, published by Dragon's Dream. One was The Seven Voyages of Lone Sloan. And there was a there was another companion one that I remember picking up in a remainder shop uh, at at some point. So I I loved looking at Drouillet in terms of the detail, and you could just stare at these double page spreads. But I never tried to draw like Drouillet, which is kind of my measure of 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 that. And and I think Mobius, I think he just intimidated me too much. There's there's you know there's the center page spread on 72 and 73 which is of arzak i never quite get it right but it's but it's the arzak character is looking behind arzak's shoulder as he's riding on his kind of albino pterodactyl flying over an alien landscape and it appears there's kind of a gathering of, of an army uh, there and it's it's done in reds primarily reds with some oranges and and yellows and with this very sort of fine inking and it was just the the imagination i just couldn't again i I would look at it and i couldn't even begin to kind of draw on where the heck was this guy coming from it's just a proper otherworldly vision and i wonder whether some of his stuff has kind of been recycled by science fiction films since you know from alien uh onwards either officially or unofficially so maybe its impact might be lessened now uh but it's yeah an unbelievable piece of piece of art i think it was used as a heavy metal magazine cover at one point i'm not sure where it originally came from um if you, what would you reckon what do you well, reckon there, i mean they're astonishing pieces of european art uh you know it that one particularly looks like Looks like a seventies prog rock album cover by Psygnosis or something like that. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's astonishing. It's a it's a wonderful piece of what we would call, uh, I suppose, Bonde Dessiné European artwork, and so much again, so much detail in there as well. So many line strokes. Um, yeah, both of them, uh, Mobius and Drulier, are just fabulous. They're, the color spreads in this book are just wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely would never have seen anything like those, particularly the Druyer stuff. It's just like, yeah, where where's that coming from? Next up, I suppose you've got the, the Wally Wood chapter. And I'm not sure about the Wally Wood chapter in that I think Wood, you know, is a much loved figure, you know, maybe a tragic figure in terms of how his, his life ended. And I think he's been incredibly influential on kind of the way people draw spaceships and and sometimes um, uh, male and female astronauts, uh, but some of the some of the art that they've chosen for the book, I think is is either just a bit unexciting in terms of its subject matter, where it's kind of you know looking at historical historical figures like Joan of Arc. Um, or is used some of his work that he did uh, the Thunder Agents time, and sometimes his work looked a bit flat and static to me for for superhero work. Um, 
but there is a lovely page on page 98 um which was uh, basically i suppose wood wally wood technology at its most balmy a kind of it shows like almost like a three floor uh factory uh, with all this kind of bizarre and incredibly detailed uh machinery uh, on it but the one the image that kind of dis- really disturbed me when i was uh seeing this for the first time is on page 101 which shows um kind of a am not sure how you would describe it almost like a human pterodactyl and it's laying its egg in its own mouth so kind oh, yes, of yes yeah it's pretty it's one of those things it's done in a very cartoony uh breezy style but makes you feel a bit a bit weird um and that that yeah did disturb me as a as a youngster that that is from there was a, a an underground comic called big apple comics although primarily it was uh, drawn by more mainstream artists from the mid 70s and these were new york based artists and i've seen a couple of netflix sort of true crime documentaries set in new york in the 70s and that place was just like no joke at all it just seemed a really dangerous violent rundown place to 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 be and the 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 comic book as a whole is a quite quite a cynical uh bitter uh view of of new york and within it wood does a strip called my word now he was quite famous for drawing a strip called my world for the EC science fiction comics, which was a very sort of gentle uh, stroll through various fictional world worlds. And at the end of it, he said something like, you know, and these are my worlds. I am Wally Wood. I am an EC artist. So it was kind of very Ray Bradbury, a very kind of sentimental uh, view of 60 science fiction. Whereas in my word is a much angrier, more bitter uh, uh, take on being a creator and you know probably reflects you know maybe a lot of the anger and bitterness that that would felt himself at the at the time so it's probably a bit of a negative image uh, or anecdote to to draw out really <laughs> you might edit this one out Eamon for, for fear of giving, giving everyone a downer but it was it was just such a powerful image it did it did stick with me what's your is this the first time you've seen that image yourself Yes, I think so. First time I've seen it, it is, as you say, a bit weird and disturbing and would probably have played with my teenage mind as well. Um, What I like about Wally Wood is that he's quite... uh, The variety of art in here, you know, he could turn his hand to anything. Um, I mean, strangely enough, as you say, his Thunder Agent's work seems the flattest and almost the least interesting. But some of his cartooning... Some of his historical stuff, his war stuff is in here. Um, the, I love the Kirby-inspired technology on that factory page. Yeah. I love a bit of Kirby tech. Um, yeah, I quite, you know, I quite enjoyed the variety of it. I think the last two pages of his were perhaps the least interesting of his bunch, including that weird, disturbing image of the uh, pterodactyl, as you say. Um, yeah. But yeah, fascinating stuff again, Wally Wood. What an interesting, you know, a chap who could turn his hand to anything, it seemed. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And 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 finally, last but but not least, page 105, Meatball. 
So for those of you who picked up on my tantalizing mention of a meatball moment at the opening of this uh, this podcast. So Eamon's probably inside saying, what, why has he chosen this? How are we going to talk about this? But um, So this is Meatball. So it's a, a reprinting of a four-page strip from Zap Comics. Um, and Zap Comics was arguably the first underground comic. Uh, Crumb printed it up and apparently sold it out of a pram on the Haight-Ashbury uh, in, in San Francisco. So I would rather concentrate on the innovative uh young crumb the maybe the um misogynistics troubled uh crumb that we 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 regard uh now and um in this this meatball uh strip was inspired by mad so there was a mad strip called uh night people versus meat bullism and i think the mad one from what i can gather is kind of aimed at the 50s baby boomers when you know the mad men kind of ad trade come out this is how you buy this is consumerism so uh, for mad magazine meatballism was kind of almost like a blind following of consumer trends meatball and i didn't get this when i was reading it when it was 12 actually is a metaphor for lsd so in the in the strip um it it kind of depicts various people going about their day-to-day life sort of living the american uh, american dream and all of a sudden out of nowhere boing they get hit by by meatball uh, you know and in the strip it's a literal meatball uh, hits people so um in in terms of i suppose this reflects crumb himself you know crumb undoubtedly you know a prodigiously talented artist from a very young age coming from a deeply dysfunctional uh, family, um, apparently took LSD and it kind of, uh, he had as subsequently shortly afterwards had this kind of massive outpouring of creativity and many of his characters uh, that he would use over the following years, just kind of like just spewed out from his, from his consciousness. Um, So, you know, I was always too scared to take acid because I was worried what might, what might happen uh, to me. So um, this works as, I suppose, a just say no uh, strip for for me. But I suppose if, I, if I'm to get all arty for a moment, I suppose Meatball is the kind of summary of what this book did for me. You know, it wasn't acid, but in terms of that kind of moment of revelation, you know, this is what comics can be. This is what comics can do. You know, it's... It, it can't be it can be under underestimated um but Eamon, very happy to to be challenged uh, if you're if you're thinking well it's not a great crumb strip and you know not even sure why you've chosen crumb so so go for it mate <laughs> well i i mean i think it's fascinating that robert crumb is included here because clearly one of the most important uh underground comic book artists of the last century um, you've got in this book, as well as the meatball strip, you've got a bit of Fritz the Cat. You've got one of the panels from the Keep on Trucking page. You've yep. got the the famous Stoned Again page. Yep. I think Doc Garriock is quite on the money because he starts in his two-page uh, sort of essay about Crumb. He starts straight up front. 
that Crumb is a controversial figure who puts his own sexual fantasies on the page and has offended many people by doing so. So I don't, you know, he doesn't doesn't beat about it. He gets straight to it. Um, again, you know, I can see the meatballs analogy because this book must have bashed you on the head. It would have bashed me on the head as being, um, firstly, there's comic book scholarship out there, you know, people talking about this stuff. And secondly, as you say, these artists that we probably... If we'd heard of them, we must have heard of them only vaguely. But to actually have them in this collection um, and have, you know, Doc Garriock's great essays about them and then some wonderful artwork to give us a teaser of what they're like is fascinating. Um, so, yeah, I mean, absolutely at the time, uh, you'd have to include Crumb. And I still think you have to include Crumb in any review of American comics from the last century. It's just that some of the stuff that's not in this book, of course, is... Um, yeah, shall we say mildly <laughs> troubling at times? Yeah, ab- absolutely. And um, I think for for me, kind of get, getting this book then made it an interesting journey as someone who enjoyed comics, because once I'd kind of encountered this, I really wasn't that interested in superhero comics or even 2000 AD, admittedly subversive as 2000 AD was so I kind of I remember um that a lad a couple years older than me got put in contact with me by school because they knew I was into comics he was into comics and I went to forever people in Bristol which was one of those amazing comic shops that you just wish you could walk into one like it like it now an absolute treasure trove so we caught a coach to forever people with our respective pocket money and at the end of the afternoon he came out with a, a stack of x-men you know chris claremont or, or whatever would have been writing the x-men and he was delighted and he kind of looked at what i had and basically i'd kind of gone through uh, warren magazines who did creepy and eerie and vampirella had just gone out of business and i think a lot of stock was dumped on the market and all the comics were there sort of 50 pence each and I'll, all i wanted to do was buy those and i bought some crumb uh and i bought a comic called trash man by spain rodriguez um worth talking about at some point in terms of his potential influence on judge dread and mad max that might be a little bit of a a family tree so it, it was kind of even though i was a couple of years younger than him and he was more worldly wise and had a girlfriend i was a bit like what are you reading the x-men for you know i want to read creepy i want to read best buy comics by crumb and i want to ring read subvert comics featuring trash man by rodriguez so this kind of <laughs> almost robbed me of i suppose that period where we should all sort of enjoy um superhero comics and i and i really don't want that to come across as snobbery about superhero comics because we'll talk about war comics in a minute and that's kind of very much a derided genre i i I think but it, it kind of i suppose just set me off on a on a slightly different trail and i suppose when we talk about my fanzines i do wonder whether this kind of almost said to me well, if the mainstream aren't doing it, just kind of do it yourself because, you know, you are allowed to express your your views and your artistic talents or lack of um, however, however you want. So, yeah, meatball, definitely meatball in paper format. 
Fantastic. Now, we know from your email exchange that he was perhaps limited slightly by which artists were willing to sort of work with him, correspond with him, provide original art for him. Are there any notable omissions? Now, obviously, the Marvel and DC superhero stuff, I think we can understand that's not what this book is about. And that, that's quite understandable. That it's not in here. So there's no Kirby or Ditko. And again, you know, we, we were familiar with that sort of stuff from the Marvel UK reprints. Were there any other sort of notable omissions from the time period that do you think uh, might have been included if he'd been able to uh, get the artwork? Well, something, something I, I generally know zilch about are, are kind of manga. So I don't really know potentially what comics were, were happening uh, in, in the 70s and 60s, you know, in non-English English language uh, speaking countries that, that could, have been, could have been included. I don't know when Gen of Hiroshima uh, came out, um, you know, an educational and powerful uh, comic. And I don't really know anything about Astro Boy. You know, you're going to tell me that was only ever a cartoon, but I think that may have been a comic strip. So I'm showing the limits of my knowledge straight away. But I do wonder whether, you know, the world's become a smaller place. So maybe some manga would be in there if we if we looked at this today. Um, I think um, Kirby and Ditko, but we understand why. Um, I think I wonder whether Steranko... Although he was a Marvel artist, I think in the way that you've got Eisner in there kind of moving comics forward with storytelling techniques, someone will know. But I think isn't there one story, uh, might have been a Nick Fury one, where Steranko kind of invented, you know, 74 new uh, approaches to, to, to telling a comic strip. Also, you know, Steranko was an innovative uh, in terms of we went on to do a media scene kind of newspaper magazine he did graphic novels he did a, a chandler um um sort of private eye uh, graphic novel and i think the art style on that i think would probably be very influential on frank miller when you when you see that and he did an outland adaptation for heavy metal that had a really interesting layout so i think possibly steranko could could have been included uh, in there couple artists I don't know much about, Alex Toth and Bernie Kriegstein, who I kind of know for the Master Race strip from EC. And I think he did one about a kite in EC. Both of those guys have got reputations for moving the, the, the medium forward. So maybe, maybe those guys. And I think from an underground comics perspective, rather than Victor Moscoso, you might have included Rick Griffin, but I think he had a book roughly about that time. Griffin kind of very much was did a lot of those kind of Grateful Dead um, uh, um, uh, gig posters that would have like a giant eyeball with angel wings and, and, and swords. So he was very innovative and he drew for Zap Comics. So I think he, he was great. Or there's another underground Cartoon, cartoonist called Greg Irons, uh, who went on to be a, 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 a tattooist and died uh, very young. Uh, I think he was in Thailand, uh, involved in an accident. Uh, he did some some brilliant work. So I think there were there were other contenders, but the ten that he did include, even Victor Moscoso, was so thought provoking, so groundbreaking. Um, maybe 
if there had been a Kirby or a Ditko, I would have said, I know about those. Like it, it's that the the thrill of the discovery, you know, it was the the unknown, the revealing of secrets that that make it such a great book. Is there anyone you think should have been in there? Well, I know. I just I I think what you say about Krigstein and Toth is very interesting, and you could make a case for both of them uh, being masters and perhaps being mentioned. Um, I will say that if you are interested in Bernie Krigstein or Alex Toth, Tony Esmond's Never Iron Anything podcast has done episodes about both of them, which are well worth uh, going to to listen. As you know, full disclosure, I'm on the Krigstein one talking about Master Race. Um, so those are worth. Those would be the ones that occurred to me. But you know, as you say, he had a limit of what he could fit in uh, to still produce yeah. a beautiful and challenging book. Um, and and the only other thing to mention there, um, possibly Eamon, is the fact that uh, Doc mentioned Dudley Watkins, and I think did he mention Leo Baxendale? Yeah. Um, because it's interesting. Before I got that email from Doc, when you and I had corresponded, I went, oh you know, there aren't any uh, humour artists in there from Britain, but maybe they're they're not that commercial. So I wonder whether the, the original director's cut of the book might have included Dudley Watkins and the publishers just went, no one in America or Europe's going to fly for Watkins or Baxendale's Bash Street Kids. Whereas maybe if it was printed now, Baxendale would be, would be included possibly. Um, yeah. Okay, fascinating. Um, I'm going to say that uh, Doc Garriuk's Masters of Comic Book Art from 1978-79 is very easy to get hold of. I'm almost embarrassed to say that I paid $2.99 with free postage for mine on eBay, Justin. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly, I checked this morning, there's still copies floating around for under a fiver. And if you've got any interest in comic book history and or sort of the uh, the sort of scholarship or study of comic book history, then I think it's it's an uh, a uh, truly remarkable addition to your bookshelf. Is yours on camera? Is yours the original one, or is that another copy that you've got since? Is it the another co- one? No, I wish I could say I've carried it with me uh, ever since, but it's uh, I've never been a great collector as in i tend to turn over my collection every couple of years but but i'm like you i've actually got three copies because they are so cheap a couple of times i've gone where is it oh bugger it Uh, it's you know 2.99 to get a new copy uh sent sent through so i've got three copies uh, dotted around the house but my my uh, my dad is uh, is here today and earlier on I went dad I'm being interviewed about this book and he flicked through it and kind of went I oh, used to love Frank Bellamy and all I remember well we'll talk about the grail page maybe in a minute I remember you copying that page so I just went well thanks dad you know it was a great it was a great present so it, it reminded me to um, tell dad that 40 years ago he kind of twisted my he twisted my brain forever with his present. <laughs> That's lovely. Well done to Mr. Marriott Senior. Great job. <laughs> uh, and well done for not flicking through and immediately opening at the Richard Corbin's boobs and thinking, no, we can't begin this. Uh, let's play a tough round of the Grail Page game then, Justin. You mentioned it. Um, we're going to give you a couple of pages or more from this book. Uh, hopefully 
they are available to um, virtually buy and not we're not one of the ones that were stolen. But anyway, <laughs> history. What you pick from an embarrassment of riches? I think we've got two to choose from. Right. So we page forty nine, which is a page from Rolf, um, black which and is white page, yeah, black and white page. So forty nine, and we'll talk a bit more about that in a moment. Or a crumb page, which is page one one two. So I'm going to give you both pages. So tell us about the Corbin page first. Fine. So so this is from the story of Rolf. Um, this was Corbin was uh, an innovator in terms of self-publishing. So I think this may have come out either in his own fanzine or someone else's fanzine initially as a complete black and white 32-page story uh, in a standard underground uh, comic format. So the size of your typical DC or DC or Marvel. So when you see the detail on this page um, reproduced in A4, imagine it was actually two thirds of, of this in the actual comic. So for a non-commercial uh, comic, the level of time and effort that must have gone into this is, is quite, quite mind, uh, mind blowing. Um, apparently Corbett as a youngster would often draw strips involving dogs and he had a pet dog. Uh, so this is, this is about a, uh, a hero who was a person, but is chooses to be turned into a dog to uh, rescue his mistress is set in a kind of an alternative dimension where um, I suppose it looks very sort of swords and sorcery uh, and a peaceful existence. And it's invaded by uh, an army of these kind of dog creatures, I would, I would say, or goblins like goblins or orcs uh, who have modern weaponry. So uh, in their tanks and with their bazookas, they just absolutely uh, raise hell uh, in this in this world. And um, in this particular page, Rolf has turned up at the castle uh, to rescue uh, his his owner, who is being uh, held prisoner um, by this this evil orc creature. And really, this kind of page represents Cor- what Corbin uh, was was so great at was because he had a background as an animator, um, often his panels looked a bit like key panels or key frames from from a film. So at the very top row, you kind of see uh, that the, the goblin stood there. You're looking over his shoulder. Rolf comes through a window in the first shot. Second shot, he's kind of flying towards the, the, the orc. And in the third shot, He's getting uh, smashed in the smashed in the face. Then you kind of have to heighten the drama, kind of uh, an, an insert of his mistress's face, who's kind of just recognised uh, him. Then the the pair uh, begin to to battle in a very well choreographed uh, battle. So black and white, uh, brilliant shadowing, brilliant detail. Looks like you're watching a watching a film. Um, it's violent, it's sexual, you know, it's over-exaggerated. I mean, I copied this page. I mean, it took me so long. And then when my dad looked at it, he kind of went, it's brilliant. He said, but I can't really pin this up around the house due to some of the, some of the, um, uh, you know, <laughs> unfiltered uh, female, female form in it. But it's, it's a brilliant, brilliant uh, 
page. What do you what 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 do you think of it, Eamon? Oh, I, I mean, I, as you know, I love black and white artwork. I love the stippling he's done in the background for the shadows. Uh, it's it's a very sort of kinetic page with a great action sequence. Um, yeah, absolutely fabulous. Uh, Richard Corbin, page forty nine of this book, uh, yep. from his own strip, Rolf. Ralph, is it? Yeah, I'm not sure if it's Ralph or Rolf. I suppose a bit yeah. of Wolf, but then a bit of a or whatever dogs, fierce dogs uh, noise make. And then up against Mr. Natural um, yes, on page 112. Uh, Crumb's most famous creations, Mr. Natural. Yeah, and this is this is the Mr. Natural pre 1990s hup and all and when uh, I th- some of the the trouble real trouble started with Crumb's kind of work. But this is when Mr. Natural was this kind of, I suppose, lampooning counterculture, people who set themselves up as gurus and dispensed uh, advice to the gullible. Um, but this particular strip is one page which appeared in Zap. It is a straightforward kind of grid of 20 panels. Yeah, four by four by five. And it shows, uh, the first panel shows Mr. Natural uh, the guru kind of going out into the desert and laying out his prayer mat and then going into deep meditation. And then the next kind of 18 panels kind of show what happens as Mr. Natural's in this deep meditation, which is effectively the whole world is developed, then collapses. And then by the time Mr. Natural awakes from his meditation, everything's gone full circle and that he's uh, awoken in this uh in this desert so i think for me there was the whole kind of again this was reproduced originally in like a standard comic so it was like this 20 panels in one page just told this incredible story um it seemed to say something to me i'm not sure i'm not sure what it was and i think it predicts maybe what is crumbs maybe most famous piece i know you mentioned stoned again uh, Eamon, but a short history of America, which I think is his sixth panel, kind of showing, you know, kind of how these telegraph poles and web of wires and and buildings gr- grow up. So, um, yeah, I just think it's just reminds me of why I sort of fell in love with Crumb uh, originally. So before before I, I might make a choice between the two, what what do you think of Mister Natural's uh, meditation session? Well, I'm going to say it's probably one of the most famous pages of Robert Crumb's Mr. Natural. It is, as you say, well before it becomes more problematic and involves all the devil girl stuff. It is um, 1970s Zap Comics issue four. Uh, it's going to be well beyond the budget of Mega City Book Club. Which I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. This is yeah. this is a probably a priceless piece of original art. Um, but yeah, absolutely fabulous. Lo- lovely to see him, and it, as you say. Uh, almost doing again the gag that would become his uh, American Civilization, the rise and fall of American Civilization yeah. strip. Yeah, uh, we'll give you them both. Two black and white pages, lots going on, two astonishing creators. Eamon, what I'd really love to what I'd really love to do now is like if I could turn the camera around and you could see behind me stolen from the publishers <laughs> <laughs> forty years ago all of those pages uh, uh, behind me. But 
No, I assure you, I've, I, I've not got that. <laughs> the mystery man from Portland who turned up at the desk and requested the artwork was you all along. Yeah. You'll never take me alive, Coffer. <laughs> it's the super villain reveal moment. Um, just very quickly, before we get to your own uh, work, um, I have previously chosen the Barry Windsor Smith page when I did the uh, Masters of British Comic Art book at Rich. So I'm going to choose page 99, Ooh. which is Wally Wood, again, doing something different. This is one of his space sort of pages. Um, ah, yes. It's very Al Williamson to me, but it's Adam and Eve, a poster. And I love a tree. <laughs> I, love, I love a drawing of a tree. Um, again, I wouldn't really be able to hang this up in the house because of boobs. But uh, that's my grail page from this particular embarrassment of riches in this one. Yeah, book. what 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 I do like of all of all the things that my eyes are drawn to on that particular poster, it w- wasn't the tree necessarily. But you yeah. you you <laughs> you you operate at a higher level than than I do, uh, Eamon. But it's a great it's a great picture, and it's got like twin moons in the background as as well. I wonder if it was in colour the poster uh, originally so i've never to, uh, i've never seen it, it. yeah okay so that's masters of comic book art by doc pr garriak uh it is wonderful and i'm so grateful for you introducing it to me it's now on my shelf with all those other bits of comic book history that i like to uh, to have um fascinating stuff justin we've gone a bit long but we have to have time to talk about guest projects because you've got to tell us about Battling Britons, the fanzine that you put out, how you started it and what it's up to at the moment. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. Um, I, I, I won't bang on. I try not to bang on for too long, bearing in mind I, I, I already have. So uh, Battling Britons, a uh, self-published fanzine that uh, I put together with, with the help of um, some really great uh, and supportive uh, creators, many of whom have appeared on the on the Mega City book club i kind of use you as kind of almost like a a, a recruitment channel i listen oh, right. i listen Eamon. Uh, uh uh you know andrew stringer who did a great episode on bullet i've, I've tapped up to uh, do something on bullets for for a future for a future issue so battling britons uh i think i call it the fanzine of vintage british war comics um I kind of I see the fanzine as the fanzine about war comics for people who don't like war comics. Um, I realise that's probably a bit of a self-defeating kind of mission, really. It's a bit like saying I'm going to launch an alcoholic drink for people who don't drink alcohol. Um, but the the idea is for me, I had a bit of a, a discovery of British comics, war comics in uh, lockdown and actually found that my preconceived ideas in terms of the level of artistry storytelling and just kind of jingoistic xenophobia uh weren't uh quite as i remembered and i think there's a little bit of learned behavior uh there in terms of people who have never read war comics i've been told it's full of captain hurricane kind of you know wielding uh japanese soldiers by the ankles while calling them alliterative racist uh, terms and so sort of discovering that made me think well actually I don't like war comics but I'm enjoying the war comics that I'm, I'm reading maybe I could write about them in a fanzine uh, in a way that might encourage other people to do so so I, I would hope that if someone did pick up the fanzine that they might read it and say oh actually 
um, I thought this was written for someone who counts the number of rivets on a tank in a comic, you know, wears camouflage and uh, would have been in the army if it wasn't for having a bad attack of asthma. And I'm sure I have got those readers and, you know, it's great to have those readers. But also I think, you know, there's something there for people who maybe don't fit that stereotype in the way that the comics don't always um, fit that stereotype. And I try to write about the comics in a way that I think is interesting and as do the uh, contributors. And for instance, recently uh, I did a piece on um, elephants in war comics. I'm doing a piece on bagpipes in war comics at the moment. Um, maybe we'll talk about the future war issue that we just we just did. So you know, if you if you like British comics uh, and you're open-minded, you know, check out an issue of Battling Britons, and like me, you might actually discover some examples in that genre which uh, are, are highly enjoyable uh, in their own right. Well, I think I've got. I should have dug out my other issues because I've got certainly I've got the Battling Britons uh, Future War special in front of me at the moment, um, which is wonderful, packed full of articles. As you say, it's not really just a fanzine about British war comics. It's more like a fanzine about British comics in general. Um, and you know, I'm enormously grateful for this article uh, in the latest issue by Jim O'Brien, which was about Stanley Baker and Hell Drivers and the Invasion Strip in 2000 AD. And as you probably know, I recently reviewed the, the, the Hell Drivers movie um, on the podcast. And the other one that's just struck out to me, and I hope I haven't just lost the page. Oh, here it is. I'll hold it up to camera. Um, we're talking about Heros the Spartan, and we're talking about Barry Windsor-Smith. And a page I hadn't seen before, Carlos Escara's landscape page mm. from... Uh, the zoo. He was only a yeah. He was only a private. I think was the name of the strip from Wizard. Yes. So it's the Rourke's Drift action, um, um, action, and again, it's got that. You know, this is all out war. Basically, this is all these characters struggling, and it's a Carlos page that I haven't previously seen. Um, so I'm, I'm, that's a wonder. You've got, as you say, you've got book clubbers uh, involved. Uh, Paul Trimble obviously does, I think, uh, some writing for you. Rich Sheaf, we've mentioned. Alan Holloway. You've got Andrew Stringer on board now. Yeah. Um, it's a remarkable piece of work. And you've brought out... How many of these have there been now altogether? So I've done four issues called Battling Britons. Uh, I did a summer special. Um, and before that, I did a what was going to be a one-off book book. Uh, totally of uh reviews and it was uh, historically i've always done fanzines about vintage paperbacks so over 20 years i've probably done i don't know 100 fanzines about paperbacks and i planned to do one about war paperbacks uh, and whilst reading those uh on the off chance i thought i remember those commandos why don't i order a couple and review them amongst the paperbacks at war as kind of a proto kind of illustrated novel and I have expected to kind of be gently prodding fun at them but then when I received them I think it was artwork by Cam Kennedy in the Commandos or Patrick Wright 
and in some of the battle picture libraries, there was Ian Kennedy, there was uh, Victor de la Fuente, um, and some of the story was more nuanced than than I expected and less jingoistic and xenophobic than I expected, although still products of their time. So I just thought, wow, no one's writing about this stuff. I've always been drawn to kind of popular culture, which isn't particularly light, whether it's horror films, whether it is kind of men's adventure paperbacks, whether it's punk music. Not to be cool, I just genuinely am drawn to this stuff. I, I kind of, I, I just have this. I just it just speaks to me in a way that other stuff doesn't doesn't speak to me. So I just thought, well, let's write something about British war comics. The book went pretty well, uh, although you know I sell them through Amazon as cl- as close to price as I or close to cost should I say as I can you know this is a hobby it's not what I do for a living and I've got no aspirations to do it for for, for a living you know it's just a, an outlet for for me so that went well so and then since then I've continued publishing so um I think the future war one is about 150 pages I think you know More, perfect I think actually near uh, 170 uh, pages 170 probably 699 maybe from was, from yeah. from Amazon so uh, you know it's kind of if you want to take a, a gamble on on having a look um I think in that issue I did a bit about uh characters uh jumping I was going to say I was going to say jumping jack flash but actually spring-heeled uh, jack which was a bit of a victorian kind of penny dreadful character but has appeared in various DC Thompson strips, including one drawn by Dave Gibbons. So did a little bit about about that. Um, did a bit about time travel uh, in English in English comics. So yeah, there's and I'm quite quite pleased. I did an article on the VCs, which was a favourite from 2000 AD, and Steve McManus, aka the Mighty Tharg, who also wrote some episodes, uh, kindly. Uh, shared some insight about the VCs and included some information that I don't think has been sort of shared uh, before. So I was kind of hoping that some of the 2000 AD uh, readers might might enjoy it. I don't think I've quite reached that crossover crossover audience, but um, yeah, give it give it a go, guys. Available from available from Amazon. You won't regret it. No, or maybe you will. Uh, includes articles <laughs> about Invasion, as you say, the VCs, Rogue Trooper, uh, Death Game 1999, and even I noticed there's an article towards the end of the book about um, the uh, Light and Darkness War by Tom Veach and Cam Kennedy. Um, yeah. By yourself, uh, that article. Yeah. And I'm still waiting for somebody to pick that to come on the book club and talk about. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> And the next issue is planned already. You've got a theme for the next issue. Yeah, yeah. It's a secret agent special. Um, so I'm sure I should make some corny joke about I can't tell you. But um, we're above that on this podcast. So uh, secret agent special. Um, I've written about Dredger. And actually re-reading, re-reading the Dredger stories, I've been really struck at, at their a total masterclass in how to tell a story in three to three and a half pages and also quite how subversive they are. You know, I've got episodes where Dredger pretends he's a member of the PLO uh, and another one, you know, his own government just uh, agreed to execute him 
uh, in return for a hostage release from the Russian government. So they're, they're great gritty stories, but also um, they're, they're very subversive uh, for a comic of that of that time. I've also written something on Bullet, which was DC Thompson's, I was going to say answer to action, but actually they both came out at the same time. Uh, and as Andrew Stringer touched on on the podcast, uh, some of the kind of the um, accusations of potential for copycat violence that took uh, action down could have been leveled uh, at Bullet. For instance, in one episode of Bullet, uh, a character is shown how to make what I would know as a Millwall brick, which is basically you take a tabloid newspaper, you roll it up, fold it up, and effectively it becomes a club. And um, I've been whacked by one and it, it works. Uh, so the fact that they were showing you in Bullet how to effectively make a club. So um, a little bit of interest as to why did Bullet kind of get under the radar and action didn't and hope to talk to Andrew about that. Uh, I've talked to Rob Williams uh, about the new battle relaunch that he's written Major Easy and Death Squad Strips for um, Jim O'Brien who you, you mentioned has done really good articles on Patrick White, who many people remember as drawing the eagle, a really uh, photorealistic uh, style, and about Larry Horrock, uh, who drew for picture libraries and went on to draw James Bond newspaper strip. So I'm really hoping that there will be a, a wide variety of looks at secret agents beyond what you might expect. And and also, I'm, I'm doing one on some of the more eccentric examples of spies from DC Thompson strips. There's a spy in a suitcase, which is uh, uh, someone who's been performing uh, in a circus um, who fits inside a suitcase, so uh, smuggled in. There's Steelhead Sam, who uh, his entire skull was crushed, has been replaced by steel and a plastic mask. So he then uses that to to headbutt through doors and werewolf where a kind of retired CID officer who's got a kind of a Bruce Wayne setup um, who turns into a wolf in the full moon and goes off to fight crime. So there's a few examples of the more bizarre uh, examples of secret agents type uh, strips. So hopefully there's something there that might um tempt you into into the secret agent special of battling britons fantastic stuff justin and uh, follow the link in the show notes for this episode or at megacitybookclub.com to find uh, battling britons on amazon with the links uh get the future war special because you'll find articles as we said about carlos Esquera, about alan grant about invasion about uh, Rogue Trooper and of course your interview with Steve McManus about the VCs uh, so great stuff go and get yourself a copy only six ninety nine and packed with articles and artwork just wonderful stuff Justin oh, thanks Eamon it's, it's lovely of you to give me the opportunity to shamelessly plug uh, plug my work thank you no they're, they're wonderful I mean I'm all you know I know how hard it is to bring out a magazine um and everything and so this is astonishing that you've now done i think this is is this six of them all together including specials yeah 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 Yeah. and and where i'm and where i'm lucky is paul trimble richard sheaf alan holloway james bacon jim o'brien steve mile phil cross hopefully andrew stringer 
these guys kind of produce articles free of charge of a really high standard. You know, it's just an absolute pleasure to pull the magazine together. So I, I kind of, what's the phrase? A dwarf standing on the shoulder of giants is, you know, I'm just lucky to have those guys uh, on on board. And also Callum Laird, uh, ex-commando editor, is getting involved as as well. So thanks. Thanks, everyone. who And everyone who buys the mag and leaves a review on Amazon or supports it. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Fantastic stuff. And a shame we haven't got time to get into our shared experience of thinking the British war comics were so much about jinguistic stuff and actually reading them and find out that is far, far from the truth. That's my fault for talking too much. <laughs> Sorry, right. Eamon. It's a shared experience, Justin. Well, thank you to Justin for your giving up your time this Friday afternoon for an episode that's going to come out in April. Pleasure. Really, really, really enjoyed it. Thank you. And thank you to everyone for listening to Mega City Book Club. As ever, find all the links, including links to Battling Britons at megacitybookclub.com. Follow the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, Mastodon and the 2080 forums and email me mcbcpodcast at gmail.com if you want to be the one to come and talk about the light and darkness war with me. <laughs> and that's it. Until next time when we're passing judgment on another great book, it's goodbye from me and... Meatball. Meatball.